Good morning, everybody. How are you today? I am good. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that. Man, okay, uh, good reminder. I told Kyle this morning, you better bring the amens, all right, or any audible comment. Glenn's here, so Phil, you know, so you can say, oh yeah, please don't say, oh no. Uh, I hope you don't have to say, oh no, but, but please be vocal. It, it helps me a lot and encourages our people. Um, man, God has, has certainly um, woven together an incredible service for us this morning. It's, this was one of those mornings with every song, with every testimony. God's just weaving this stuff together. I'm excited to, to roll this out for you this morning and let you see what God's got for us. A um, couple of things. Number one, that this week and the next three weeks um, is Jesus uh, teaching the disciples. I'm going to talk about that more in a moment, but, but here's what you can expect. For those of us that are followers of Jesus who have committed our life to pursuing him, this is going to be challenging. So just be ready for that. God is, uh, is fixing to kind of lay the hammer down, as they say. Last week, Kerry did a wonderful job of setting us up for this. He reminded us that Jesus is the one bringing his kingdom, right? That this is a work that Jesus does. He uses us, but ultimately the work is his. He's just asked us to join him in what he is already doing. As part of that process, what Kerry preached on last week is that Jesus chose these 12 ordinary men to join him and then to be sent out to be apostles, to, to preach the good news. An apostle is simply someone who has learned directly from the Lord or from another apostle who is then sent out to share the message that they have learned. And then after calling these 12, Jesus can, continues to do what only he can do, that he, he does the miracles, he preaches the message, he reveals hearts, he, he sees people in a way that only he can. And the emphasis was that Jesus is calling us to be his disciples. And after learning from Jesus, to be sent out and to share with other people the things that we have learned. Today, Jesus is going to be teaching the disciples. If you look at, at Matthew, and we know that because if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to, through 2, which is the, the uh, same story as what we're going to see today in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20, we're going to see that Jesus is speaking directly to those, these, those that he's called. I want, to, I want to show you this. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. It says, When he saw the crowds, he being Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to, get, to them. And he began teaching them, saying, and then it moves into the Beatitudes. It's worth noting uh, at this point that Luke calls this the Sermon on the Plain. If you're reading in the book of Matthew, he calls it the Sermon on the Mount. There's a couple of theories about that because this is the same set of teachings. Um, Luke's is a bit more abbreviated than Matthew's. But some scholars believe that this was Jesus preaching like a circuit preacher. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that term. It was something I heard a lot growing up, but a circuit preacher, my grandfather was one. He had multiple churches that he preached at every Sunday. He'd do two in the mornings and one in the evenings. And typically a circuit preacher preached the same message at all of their locations. And if you think about the way that Jesus is spreading this message, it's him teaching people. And so it would make sense that he would preach a message in one location and then move to another and preach the same thing. That's how people are, are learning about who he is. The other theory is that Jesus was on this mountain teaching, and then after coming down from the mountain onto the plain, then he, he taught his disciples. I, I pulled a picture up. This is just from Google Earth. I love maps. Y'all know that about me. So this is not looking directly down. It's kind of pointed at an angle, and it, you can't see it on here, but kind of up towards the tip of that water is Capernaum, and we've talked a lot about Capernaum, and that's the area in which Jesus is teaching. And so you can see there's some elevated areas up towards the top of that map, and so this is the mount and the plains that they're talking about. The part where it goes up is a mountain, and where it starts to smooth out is the plain. And so 
there is some, what my point is, is that regardless of whether Jesus does this teaching on the mountain or at the, on the plain, what's really important is who he's teaching, right? Matthew and Luke both agree that Jesus is t- teaching those that he had chosen to be followers. And these men not only had been chosen by Jesus, but in return, they chose to follow him, right? Remember the story of of Peter in the boat and James and John that were with him when Jesus said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left everything immediately and followed Jesus. And then Carrie shared the others last week. For these men that have chosen to follow Jesus, they're about to get the inside track on why he's here. This moment that we're going to cover over the next three weeks, this week plus three more, is Jesus giving these guys the inside track on what the kingdom of God is all about. This desire for the inside track is something that exists in all of us, right? Like, raise your hand. Okay, don't raise your hand. If you like to hear juicy details about something, everybody likes that, right? Even if you don't want to admit it, like if you hear a little, a little juice happening over here, like you want to listen in just a little bit, all of us like that. It's that desire to know what's going on that has made shows like how it's made. Raise your hand if you've ever watched that on the Discovery Channel. Those are super cool. Like, I didn't know that M&Ms were such an involved process until I watched how it's made, and now I'm even more curious about M&Ms, right? That's just an example. But other advanced fields of study like space exploration, medicine, biology, chemistry, physics, history, all of those things start with curiosity, with a desire to understand more about a thing that you're interested in. To know why things happen and how they happen is what drives human to ask questions, to dig deeper, to become who we are really, is this desire to know, that curiosity. In our passage today, Jesus is giving his disciples a glimpse into how God sees the world. The reality is that these guys were curious about Jesus. That's why they're following him. They don't know everything there is to know about Jesus, but what they have seen has sparked their interest. And, and to the point that they were willing to leave everything to go and to follow him. Jesus was so different from anybody else they'd ever met. And this curiosity served them well. They're going to see that God's view stands in opposition to how they saw the world. To how we see the world. Specifically, the major theme in this section that we're going to talk about over the next four weeks is a redefining by Jesus of what brings honor and what brings shame. Specifically today, we're going to talk about honor and shame and the way that Jesus is explaining these things. Let's read these verses together and then we're going to dive in. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26. It says, Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for this is the way the ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Words of encouragement and words of warning from Jesus are the beginning of this section. But Jesus isn't teaching just anybody. I want to point us back to this again. This is point number one, is that Jesus is addressing the disciples, not the unbelieving crowds. 
That's an important distinction. I mentioned this previously, but I want to make sure we're all completely clear on this. Otherwise, we could read this passage and think that Jesus is saying that the poor and hungry of this world are blessed. And we know that obviously that is not true, correct? Amen? All right. Y'all still with me? Okay. Thank you, Glenn. I'm glad somebody is. All right. So let's, let's talk about this idea of what it means to be blessed. Look at with me at Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 through 27. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. You should say to them, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites and I will bless them. So blessed in the ancient Near East. And as Jesus is using it here, meant highly favored, speaking specifically of divine grace. There's two specific words in the Hebrew and the Greek that are translated to blessed. In Hebrew, it's berak. Actually, you're supposed to chew on that at the end. Berak is the way you're supposed to say that. And it means to speak words invoking divine favor with the intent that the object will have favorable circumstances or state at a future time. In Greek, it's mekeros which means blessed, happy, fortunate. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus declares that people who experience various kinds of difficulties or undesirable circumstances are in fact blessed by God. Here, the contrast with apparently the negative condition sheds lights on the nature of true blessedness. This word makeros can also be used to describe God as blessed. In at least a few instances, it refers to future favorable circumstances. In many cultures and in this time, to be blessed was also expressed as to shine your face upon. We see that in the Numbers passage that we just read. I want you to understand something. Jesus is making a radical change in the understanding of these disciples about what it means to be blessed. If you consider what Jesus is saying to them, if you think about this in your own context, does the hashtag blessed conjure up imagery of poor and hungry and sorrowful, and hatred? Is that what hashtag blessed means in our culture? No, it doesn't. Of course they don't. Yet here we see Jesus telling his disciples that those believers who are in those conditions because of their obedience to follow Jesus are blessed by God. Jesus is saying that in the course of our following Jesus, when we experience any of these things, We are blessed, not because of the hardship, but because we have God's full attention. His face shines upon us. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about what it meant when Jesus saw someone, that he didn't just see their physical appearance, he fully saw them. They were fully known in the moment that his eyes met their body. This is what Jesus is talking about. When he's saying, when you experience these things because you're walking in obedience, because you are following me, you are blessed because you have God's full attention. Verse 23, Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. This is point number two, is that rejoicing is a result of God giving honor to those who follow Jesus' example. If we experience any of these kinds of suffering in the midst of our response to our following Jesus, we have God's full attention and we will be rewarded for our obedience. As followers of Jesus, we're going to face those that claim to be followers, 
yet are living for themselves. One of the most famous examples of this is found in Acts chapter 7. Look at the accusation that Stephen made on these people that eventually killed him. Y'all know this story, Acts chapter 7, verse 51 through 52. Stephen says to them, he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You feel that? What Stephen is saying to these religious leaders, he's calling out the historical rejection of God's word by the people that were supposed to be his, by the people who claimed his name. And their response was to kill Stephen just like their ancestors had killed prophets. Last night, Bethany and I were sitting outside before bed and just talking about things, and she mentioned the children's story for today, and she said, it's out of Jeremiah. Here, let me read it for you. And it was the story that we heard just a moment ago. I want us to read this again because I want you to see the threads that God's weaving today. This is from Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11. It said, the Lord gave another message to Jeremiah and said, go down to the potter's shop and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me and I found the potter working in his wheel, but the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay and started over again. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as the potter has done to this clay? As the clay is in the potter's hands, so you are in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil's ways, I will not destroy as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all of Judah and Jerusalem and say to them, this is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. Jesus is trying to help the disciples to understand to realize that this upside-down kingdom that he is establishing is going to be difficult for some people to accept. As we read in Acts and in Jeremiah, this is a not a new condition for humanity. From the very beginning, we have rebelled against God's authority. That's what Jeremiah is prophesying about. It's God saying, I wanted you to be this thing. I began to mold you into it, but it didn't turn out the way I wanted. And so I'm going to break it down and I'm going to rebuild it again. When we're following Jesus, when we're working to bring about this upside-down kingdom, we're going to face ridicule. And experiencing that, Jesus says that we should rejoice in knowing that our reward is in heaven. We should rejoice in knowing that, we, that what we are doing in following Jesus is correct. If we receive, hear me on this, we should rejoice in knowing if the ridicule that we receive when following Jesus is the same ridicule that he and every prophet before him also received. If people are fighting against you, you can take solace in knowing that more than likely you're doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do. In Jesus' day and ours, shame is culturally found in poverty, in hunger, in sorrow, in hatred. But this is not the case for those that are following Jesus. At the same time, Jesus redefines what will bring shame. They're described as woes. The Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary says, A woe is an interjection denoting pain, discomfort, or unhappiness. It's a distinctive form of prophetic speech that's found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is characteristic, therefore, 
that a woe cry should be used in an impersonal formulation expressing intense anger and directed against certain types of activity which are strongly disapproved of. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, don't do these things, okay? So what are these activities that Jesus is categorizing as shameful? What's he warning against? This is point number three. From God's perspective, shame is the result of living your life focused only on your own needs and desires. This morning I was going to get up and share that testimony that Bethany shared because I didn't think she would do it because she didn't want to brag on herself. She didn't want to brag on her team that she's developed for Wednesday nights. But I did want to brag on her. I wanted to wave that banner because what happened on Wednesday night is that she and Carrie and the others that were here sacrificed their time to love a family, to show a mom that she and her children are cared for by this body of Christ, which is a direct reflection of how Jesus feels about her. She was earning the right to share the gospel with this family. She and Carrie that sat in this lady's house for an hour and a half on a Wednesday night. And that's not the first interaction we've had with her. We've had numerous interactions in similar fashions where we are earning the right to be heard. Let's look again at verses 24 and 26. It says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way the ancestors used to teach, treat the false prophets. Do you see how upside down it is when compared to the world? When we think of hashtag blessed, we think of rich. We think of well-spoken of people, right? Once again, <clears throat> Jesus is trying to help us to understand that he is here because he cares about people. All people, as image bearers of God, should be treated as such. In his upside-down kingdom, Jesus wants us to see that the world's priority on self-fulfillment is the opposite of kingdom priorities. This is the inside track that Jesus is talking about. He's trying to help the disciples to understand, look, if you're going to be my followers, the things that the world says are honorable will be shameful. And the things that the world says are shameful will what brings you honor. But the best honor, not the honor of men, but the honor of God. He's flipping over their understanding. The disciples' understanding of what it means to live in the kingdom. In the early church, we see this explosive response to actually living this way. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47. Again, I know you're familiar with this, but I want us to see it this morning. It says, so those that accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. 
This is the very kind of kingdom that Jesus is telling the disciples about. They're beginning their ministry with him. They barely know him. And he's saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And then they spend three years following Jesus after he's dead and resurrected, commissions them, says, wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. They begin to live out this example that Jesus lived before them. And the response to the people from the people was incredible. Because the upside down kingdom works. People sold their possession and they give up their wealth and their comfort and their time when they experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. When God was living in them. The results of living like this was a world changing movement that was introduced the world to the Messiah. We know about Jesus because there was a group of men. A group of ordinary men who chose to follow Jesus and they walked in obedience and it exploded across the globe because the upside down kingdom works. I know you've heard me say this before, but if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten, right? Y'all have heard that before? I didn't, I didn't plan to do this, but I'm going to open up toes or something I read this morning. He said, self-righteousness Self-righteousness is a terrible among God's people. If we feel that we are what we ought to be, then we will remain what we are. We will not look for any change or improvement in our lives. This will quite literally lead us to judge everyone by what we are. This is the judgment to which we must be careful. To judge others by ourselves is to create havoc in the local assembly. Tozer are saying the same thing. If we look in our lives and we say, yeah, I'm good, then we're missing the point and there's no opportunity for growth. The status quo of the religious people in the days of Jesus wasn't helping people come to know God. That's why Jesus came. Can we agree on that? Okay. I would say that the same is true today. When we're more worried about ourselves, about our opinions and our politics than we are about our neighbors, we are living in dead religion. And we'll say that again. When we're more worried about our opinions, our politics, and ourselves, than we are our neighbors, we are living in dead religion. Jesus was teaching his followers that living sacrificially was the path to being blessed by God. Church, if we really desire to know God and to make him known, we cannot continue letting our culture define what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus is defining the kingdom for his disciples. He is role modeling that life. And hear me on this. It cost him his life. As followers of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, are we actually going to follow him? Are we willing to live sacrificially for the sake of others? Ask yourself, am I willing to give up on what culture says is most important in order to embrace the kingdom of God? Because you cannot do both. Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom values don't line up with the cultural values. Not even one bit. Church, this is not about compromising. This is about abandoning our lust for cultural acceptance so that we can experience the love of God. And I want to be clear, I don't I don't feel like TGP West has got the corner on the market. I think that we need to heed Tozer's advice, each of us individually. 
and self-reflect. This is the point in the sermon where you might expect to get a list of things you should do. But I'm not going to do that. Because if I give you a list, you'll work that list and nothing will change in your life. Except that you've done some things that you hadn't done before maybe. Here's what I am going to ask. Take some serious time this week and meditate on this passage. Give God the time and the room to speak into your life and make the changes that he sees fit. Give yourself an opportunity to actually follow Jesus this week by looking at this and and saying, God, I am the clay and you are the potter. If you need to break me down and start over, do that. The last thing that I want or God wants is more dead religion. If I give you a list, we'll all try really hard, but Jesus isn't transforming us. We're just doing new stuff. We must allow Jesus to transform our perceptions that have been shaped by this world because we all grew up in it. Culture affects us whether we like to admit it or not. We must allow Jesus to define the kingdom of God in our lives today. Where we work, where we live, where we play, where we eat, where we do whatever. Jesus, what does your kingdom look like in my life where you have put me? I can't tell you that. I can tell you what God has said for me in my life. But it does me no good and it does you no good for me to try to define what the kingdom of God looks like in your life. Scripture is clear, right? But the specifics are between you and God. And I don't want to be the mediator between that. The Holy Spirit, that's His job, not mine. If we're truly going to know Jesus, we have to be willing to follow His lead. He's laying out for His disciples what that's going to look like. He's laying it out for us too. And I would say, church, that many of the problems in the world that the church perpetuates are the result of living in an echo chamber. And we don't need more of that. We need a fresh word from the Lord every day for our lives. Jesus pulls the disciples away from the crowds and he lays out what his kingdom looks like. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus continue his teaching within this small group of men. But this, today, what we talked about is the first step. Letting Jesus redefine your life so that it looks like his and not like the world's is step number one to being a follower of Jesus. If you let him, you too will find yourself rejoicing as you join Jesus in changing this world. Jesus and a small group turned the world upside down. But Jesus isn't done. He wants to continue to do that work through your life, through your life group, through the people that he's put around you. The question is, will you let him? Will you choose to follow Jesus and let him define what his kingdom looks like in your specific life. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so incredibly thankful for a church that I can preach a message like this in. Because Father, I know that my heart's desire is to follow you. And I know that I'm not alone in that. Father, But I also know that there are strongholds in my life. And I know I'm not alone in that. So Father, I ask that this week that you would give us a desire to meditate on your word. To think specifically about what you are calling us to do and to be in the world around us. 
Jesus, teach us what it means to to truly follow you, to, to know you more than we've ever known you before. Jesus, we want to be your disciples. We want to learn from you. We want to sit at your feet. Jesus, we want to, to know you in a way that we've never known you before. But we know that we've got to get rid of the distractions. We've got to get rid of the, the culture that invades our minds and our hearts. So Father, I ask that you do that work in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, that you would clear space in our, in our schedules, in our hearts, clear space for you. Jesus, as we close in worship this morning, I ask that your spirit would be ever present with us. Lord, that you would begin to work this message into our hearts and into our souls and prepare us for a week of digging into your word and knowing you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.